Captain Cook is wearing his heels, clopping out onto the wooden deck, looking out to the deadly hills, stones off to the side of his ship. Miles of deadly sandbars, grinning everywhere else, the water deadly cold and moves rapidly in thirty-foot tides. Turn again, the call goes out up into the rigging, the ship bearing through treacheries, the ropes are creaking, a sailor's prayer singed around the edges. Turn again. The ship flips up softly, barely sliding off the back of a hidden sandbar. Turn again. The riptide is frightening. There was no call this time. The ship turned again and left. The crew imagined themselves still back there stuck fast in the mud, drowning in the first two feet of the tide, clawing the mud from their mouths, watching themselves become forgotten. October 16, 1972, a Cessna 310C, tail number November 1812, hotel operated by Pan Alaska Airways, disappeared somewhere between Anchorage and Juneau. Don Johns was an established pilot and former instructor. In the early 60s, while working for Seven Seas Airlines, he delivered relief goods to the Belgian Congo. The last 10 years had been flying in the frigid north, where he became a well-known expert on extreme flying. His article, Ice Without Fear, was published in Flying Magazine in October 1972. Johns donated his time, leased a plane, to escort precious cargo, the House Majority Leader, the Alaska Freshman Congressman, and a Congressional aide. The plane had gotten fuel, loaded up three passengers and a little luggage, took off out of ANC. The air traffic controller back in the tower made visual confirmation. The plane was heading south, two miles from the airport, safely at 2,000 feet. The employee at Sea Motive Fueling sees all types, hunters, bakers, dentists, fishermen. The Cessna 310C was in today's money, a half a million dollar plane. Two fuel-injected motors, one on each wing, five open seats with a pilot. Innovation for a safer world. Each footstep of progress in aviation is usually where someone else's footprints end. The dive master who retrieved Samantha from beneath the ice He had to describe a child's body he had retrieved from a commercial plane crash years earlier. He responded, bathed in fire. It has always been unsettling to imagine a family of crash test dummies looking out from the windows of a drop aircraft, ready to examine the results of the test, the clipboards wait. As the hasp is triggered and the test plane falls, the plane gathers speed and begins to naturally level off a bit. The wind begins to hiss, salvation over her wings, contact. The belly of the plane flattens on the target, the seats hold their ground, the bodies still falling make contact the seats and the seat cushions. Could they walk away from this? Some could, yes. They made it. The wings contact the pad and become distorted, hard things move into soft things, still holding its shape. Heavy bladders of liquid 
now landing like juggernauts made with skin of wax paper. The wrinkled test plane grinds concrete and stops, and the test dummies with shock melting into smiles of disbelief, waving and laughing, muffled to the onwatchers, still watching through the very blurry windows. Covered in an oily sweat, basted in turkey drippings, the aircraft explodes in a deep orange burst. The auction all but gone in a moment, the fireball is wrapped in black carbon curtains, and the flame still coming into sight once in a while as he is raging around in there, kicking over chairs and gobbling up any untouched air he can find, trying just to live a little longer. The test had went perfectly. Innovation for a safer tomorrow. The Cessna 310C puts the fuel as far from your loved ones as possible, all the way out at the tip of the wing, in a space-age aerodynamic fuel pod. The younger gentleman staring down into the glossy brochure of the new used Cessna 310C, nodding and clicking his pen. He has done his research. The main tanks are on the tips of the wing. You mustn't ever run the wing tips dry. Balancing fuel is paramount. The main tanks have always been in the wing. In the 310C, they are not. It's innovation for a safer tomorrow. Hale Boggs was the 28-year representative of Louisiana and the House Majority Leader. At 26, Boggs became the youngest representative in Congress and later the youngest member on the Warren Commission. In 1965, the voting rights bill Boggs supported made it a federal crime to illegally disqualify voters. Boggs was moved by what the young baggage was doing in his state of Alaska and offered to campaign with him in the last frontier. November 12, 18 Hotel is traveling parallel with Cook Inlet and turns left into the wind. He lets the guys in the back know she's going to be a bumpy ride. It already had been. At about three miles out of the airport, they had been a pretty scary drop from turbulence best described as an anomaly. There are a lot of things going on up here today, he clicks the headset. He can now get a good eye shot down towards the portage. The landscape down below is made of walls of stone, hidden sandbars grin everywhere else. The riptides are furious. Within minutes, he is over seagrass, and the Turnigan arm is safely behind him. The weather service had expected portage pass to be closed in with clouds today. He can see light paths in the mist. He stays the course, and he threads the eye of the needle. Two different townspeople hear the plane pass over and on. The talented pilot immediately radios the flight service station, verifies his flight plan, and has permission to proceed. Calmly in the mist, he had flown through a crack in the wall of stone, walls mostly a mile high. Three hours and twenty minutes or so and we will be in Juneau. Click. There are very strong winds. November 1812 Hotel is skipping like a stone across the tops of the hard clouds trying to pull her in, the two engines pulling right along and quickly. There is almost nothing before him but gray, more than halfway there over the Gulf of Alaska, God's country, as it were. No one else is really around forever. The passengers are stretching their legs. He can see them stirring. He clicks his headset on to the common channel and he is listening to their conversation. He won't interrupt but wait for the next break to jump in and let them know in an hour or plus they will be on the ground. Maybe he should interrupt. 
The guy is saying how the dentist guy is trying to get his assistant into the plane door. She's giggling and he's hopping around and she's wearing this tiny little skirt. And her pocketbook spills out into the wind. The dentist is trying to grab the papers and stuff. The airport staff is coming to help but the entire time she's chasing the papers. They're tripping all over themselves. The pilot breaks in with his update. Well, the big guy asks him. You have had to have seen her. I saw you over there just across from us warming up the plane. Trust me, guys. He was sitting in the catbird seat. I wish I could tell you I saw her, but to tell you the truth, I was going over the weather and the charts. I almost called it off. There are a lot of things going on up here today. Well, good for you. She was plenty of a distraction, let me tell you. He clicks the switch and reevaluates his situation. He wasn't warming up the plane, he was getting fuel. The pilot's eyes glaze over for a second and he looks over at the fuel selector switch. The switch is on the main tanks. The left engine becomes silent, breaking free from the twisted wreckage and rigging, a sailor fighting up through towards the light and finally breaks free through the surface of the water. That first frantic and wild-eyed breath the pilot goes for the switch. Maybe the guys will jump. You're not supposed to spook the executives. The big guy is laughing, head back, eyes unaware. The man with the glasses has seen the dead propeller. He is rising like a mummy. The other guy had been laughing too, but is now recoiling, jumping up and back, as if time was almost still. The selector is sliding into his grip, and he feels the vibrations from the right engine as it stops. The wind still whistles over the fuel tanks. The stone skipping slower across the turbulence, digging deeper each time. How many times had he said it? Flying between the cloud layers is chancy. Typically layers fuse together. When that happens, guess who gets crunched? It's better to go over and under. He was an expert of flying amongst these clouds. He was learning the hard way what it will be like to fall through one. The altimeter will work with no power, no fuel, calibrated to inches in mercury. When you eventually make it to the surface of the ocean, he will have been the most faithful and accurate of your last companions, watching you move in and out of the most rarest of states, wanting to live just a little longer. The alarms are clanging, trying to glide into tumbling gray light. Invisible monsters race by, taunting snag, they steal your energy, and whichever wing will drop. Trying to glide into tumbling gray light, the monster swooping in on you as you are falling down through the mountain. The altimeter is nodding down, the last of his duties. As the background, through spinning windows, there is a darkness looping over and over out of the gray. It is not spinning, you are spinning. It is the heaviest of things, the ocean, but it is being thrown about and thrashed from horizon to horizon, the thought becomes contact. The waves are so beautiful when you are all safe and warm, when they are moving and there will never be fear. They are still beautiful even when littered on with debris. 
designed to be thrusted through the slipstream burning avgas and falling to earth, finding the tune again, flashing through moons by the moment, loping through tides, the balance comes into her cadence. Going in a long arc of spiral, the tiny ship terribly spinning in orbit. It broke the water with the tip of the wing and followed in on the fuel pot. The double flash poof poof. And the gulping sound of a circular bedroom collapsing in on the backs of and into the waves. If you hadn't seen it, you would have missed it. The waves were still beautiful last night, as the last of the bobbing flotsam, ignorant of honor, went down to be with his brothers, having fallen down in a tumbling gray out of heaven, to be now raining down slowly, tumbling in the dark. The beautiful waves can hear it, out of every valley where the people are, over the mountains and up in the crannies they come. Diesel knocking the thick propeller through the sloshing uncertainty. Smaller vessels buzzing amongst the reaches. The flyers arrive and eager, looking for four lost souls. Russell Brown was born in Nebraska in 1935. He studied chemistry at the University of Nebraska. Russell was married to Onita, who had three children, and soon Mr. and Mrs. Brown welcomed a baby girl, Marie Nicole, to their family. Russell moved to Ketchikan, Alaska, becoming a chemist for the Alaska Fish and Game. The Ketchikan lab, operating from 1940 to 1971, was initially dispatched to find emergency rations for marine life starting with a 1,200-pound sea lion. The lab would go on to monitor marine life, commercial fisheries, and the ethical development of the industry. Russell befriended Nick Bagage, a political science professor, and later Representative Bagage's campaign aide. The air traffic controller back in the tower made visual confirmation. The plane was heading south two miles from the airport, safely at 2,000 feet. November 1812 Hotel turns left into the wind. How many times had he said it? I prefer climbing out of trouble. But it is a critical decision. It has to be made early. It is fraught with the probability that conditions will degrade at the top. Not to mention that you will have a hard time getting up there. If your bid for the blue sky is unsuccessful, you have a monkey on your back. The trip down won't be pleasant. Breaking out into the clouds, the brilliant sunshine on top never materialized. Shrugging off reason that his bid for the blue sky had not been successful, he had a hard time getting up here. He has a monkey on his back, the trip up was frightening. This is a learning experience, there is always an advantage to be gained. He is descending, he is in control and he is confident that the decisions he had made were correct. It feels like there are monsters dashing in around the tumbling gray, tugging at the small plane. 
we will graze their shoulders. He reaches down and turns the left motor onto the auxiliary. He leaves the right on the main. He has made room for the extra fuel. The auxiliaries are made for cruising on top. They are not made for a rodeo. He sweeps his eyes into the glass of the altimeter, the ever-faithful friend. He will run the left power plant on auxiliary and keep a close eye on it. If it works fine, he will cycle the left and the right, one on the main, one on the auxiliary. Responsibility of balancing the fuel is para-contact. The frequencies of the atmosphere crackled with CB radio boosters. Maritime vessels chugging along the search lines. Oversight looking down, it's the Civil Air Patrol. The coastal guards clop out in their knighthood. The Navy peering in between the islands, listening to the waves of waves within the waves. The Army burning jet fuel and avgas, hoses the size of your wrist. The Air Force listening for every crack and whistle, flying a stethoscope out over the emptiness. The heavy sea ship captain was asked. Have you ever seen anything strange upon the ocean? He searched in the space above his eyes and reluctantly answered, The ocean is seducing. Thirty-nine days they searched crawling along the edges, crossing the open lonesome. Thirty-nine days lost in the dream state of the sirens, of ocean and mountains and fog. And they are still beautiful, even as you dissolve into them. The white goats were witness of only their ears, of the trumpet coming down from heaven. Louder through the tumbling gray across the entire range, just below the spring grazing grounds, the trumpet goes silent. The goat knows that it hit the boulders of the rock spillway. The sound was softer than the solid granite walls all around it. A rock slide dislodges and pours down for almost a minute. Nick Begich's lineage hails from Croatia, but his family is all Alaskan. He was married to Peggy and they had six children together. In 1968, the need for a pipeline from Prudhoe Bay to Valdez was dire, with the discovery of oil on the north slope of Alaska. The more than 800-mile pipeline would pass through native lands. Nick Begich was instrumental in the historic Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. Numerous times, the politics of Washington and the Alaska Federation of Natives did not agree and the process nearly abandoned. Baggage's guileless demeanor steering the parties back into communication. One veteran lobbyist observed, it is the best individual achievement I have ever heard for a freshman congressman. The settlement would make available 44 million acres of land and allowing Alaska natives who had been economically disadvantaged to become economic leaders through native corporations. The north slope of Alaska runs from the Brooks Range down to the Arctic Ocean and employs hundreds of Alaskans through the oil industry.
The air traffic controller back in the tower made visual confirmation. The plane was heading south two miles away from the airport. Portage passes closed in, but he flew into veins of light in the mist. The fuel has been balanced. If these guys weren't bigwigs, he'd have called this one off at the fuel station. The turbulence has been instant and violent. At one point, about three miles from the airport, it was too strong. There was a commercial pilot, taking off from the Honorable Merrill Field at nearly the exact minute as November 1812 had from ANC. The pilot was heading south, parallel with Cook Inlet, and he reported an anomaly of turbulence that was instantaneous and violent. His shins were bleeding. He continued farther away from it, turning right, away from the deadly Turnigan arm. The pilot later returned to Merrill Field after he completed his route. The airport coming into view and he can see aircraft of all types being ready. Something big has went down. Safely at 2,000 feet, November 1812 hotel turns left into the wind. Just over through that mile-high wall of stone, he will come down into Prince William Sound. The sound is massive. Weather systems swaying back and forth in a bathtub. He threads the eye of the needle when the water is on the other side of the tub. He eases in now. Flawless. The glaciers are melting, the oldest ice long gone, the teenage ice, pigeon-toed and blushing. The skies are like crumbling theme park in ruin. The days of the ice sheets now hang tattered in a placid breeze. The heavens once churned bowls into the mountains and she bore him rivers of ice. Like star-crossed lovers, her face is glowing and his strength now bolder for a moment. As the water sloshes in the bathtub, there was a moment when the rarest of states of the winds, the moisture, the inversion of hot and cold, all the aces aligned randomly for a moment. And then it was gone. The star-crossed lovers laying quiet again. As the trumpet climbs into heaven over the foot of their bed, he is monitoring everything in cycles. At any moment, he is re-verifying something he had checked less than 30 seconds before. Some things allowed slightly more time in between. He was climbing up through a cloud in a very modest and safe bid for the blue skies. A convergence of water in the bathtub, meeting all at once. And as they welled up beneath him, driving wet juicy air up to the stratus, every micron of super chilled water, harmonizing and still holding all of its energy. Something not seen around here in a very long, long time. And a rivet on the nose of the plane struck the first one. The energy field collapsed. And the stargazing waters is terrified and clings to the only familiar thing she can find. He had never thought of ever combining the two words thermometer and erratic. Something to ponder later. There is a convergence and it has developed right before 
he passed into it. Shattering a relic not seen since the days of the Ice Age to see the intimacy of energy and water. It all collapsed and he had literally flown through the screen of a time machine. A type of silent sonic boom. Nightmare of ice. Nothing we have ever known. We've seen the ice that they left. Falling out of the sky, hurtling down through the range in the tumbling gray, the spring grazing grounds and contact. Cessna November 1812 Hotel, piloted by Don Johns, with Nicholas Bagage, Hale Boggs, and Russell Brown, went missing without a trace on October 16, 1972. After five and a half weeks of searching by air, land, and sea, and even utilizing the secret SR-71 Blackbird, the search was called off. The men were declared deceased on December 29, 1972. No trace of the plane or the men have ever been found. Find us online at TC49 Podcast. See show notes for more information.